My name is Daniel, and I am the community pastor here at Core Church. And man, we are so excited that you are here today. We say this every week, but you have walked into a place of hope, of healing, a place where you can experience peace, and a place where you can discover purpose. That is what we want for you as a church. More importantly, that is what God wants for your life. And so today we are in a series called the Psalms of Summer, where we are taking a look at the book of Psalms. So strap in for the next 10 hours. We're going to be going through all 150 chapters. No, we, we are not. We are not doing that. And um, what the teaching team has just had a chance to look at some of the Psalms and pick out some of our favorites. And Pastor Eric did a great job last week talking about Psalm 91. We talked about how God is our refuge and our shelter and um, man, I was just so excited when this idea came up that we're going to be talking about the Psalms. I think as a worship leader, you know, it's kind of an unwritten rule that our favorite book has to be the book of Psalms. And so um, there's so much good stuff in this book, stories of God's deliverance, prayers of God's faithfulness, encounters of God's love. And I'm like, man, God, I cannot wait because I'm going to talk about something fun. I'm going to talk about something uplifting. It's going to be easy. I got to pray about it. And God said, Daniel, you're going to talk about Repentance. I was like, I don't want to talk about repentance, God. I want to talk about something fun. Come on. Lord is my shepherd. Cut me you know, something. No, no. So today we are going to be in Psalm 51, which is a prayer of King David and repentance. And just to give you a backstory on this psalm, Psalm 51 is uh, when King David, the mightiest political figure in all of the history of the nation of Israel, I mean, my goodness, on the flag, it's still today called the Star of David, I mean, he is, he is the guy. But this is a moment of David's, this is the lowest moment for David. This, he is caught in the midst of a moral and political scandal that would be absolutely today the front page, the headline on everything, every media platform there is. If it happened today, we would, it's all anyone would talk about. And this is where we find David. See, David was the king. And one day he was out on his balcony overlooking and he saw a woman getting ready to take a bath and so David has a total perv show peep show moment and watches this woman take a bath invites her over uh, has an affair with this woman and then proceeds to have her husband killed and covers it all up and so this is where we find David until Nathan the prophet comes to David and says David I know what you did last summer and so calls David out on the carpet and David repents and this is where we find David in Psalm 51. And so I just want to read a few verses out of this. I'm kind of going to go all over the place. If you have a Bible, you can kind of look with me. I'll be reading out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. If you don't have a Bible, uh, man, I just encourage you to go to your app store. Uh, check out the YouVersion app. Um, it's the number one Bible app in the world. And uh, it's one we use around here, and it is great. So Psalm 51, once again, this is where we find David at the bottom, crying out for mercy to God. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what's evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me 
rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. For you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. But the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, your word is truth and your word is life. And God, I just pray right now that uh, you would help us, God, by your spirit for us to open up our hearts to you. God, to hear from you, Lord, that you would speak clearly into our hearts and lives today. God, whatever barriers, whatever obstacles we have, God, we lay them down before you right now, Lord. We don't let pride hold us back. We don't let fear or intimidation or condemnation hold us back. God, we want to hear from you. So God, we pray that you would move mightily in this place, God, by your power and by your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. And if you're ready to hear from God, can I get a big amen? Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. So um, right now it seems like public apologies are just everywhere. They're at the forefront of the news. They are at the forefront of everything. It just seems you can't turn around right now without seeing someone who's caught in some sort of scandal, someone who's been caught in some sort of lie or some sort of abuse or some affair or just something that they should not be doing, whether it's a politician or whether it's a um, public figure, an actor right now. Those are just, man, those stories are coming out all over the place. And I don't want to start out quite that heavy, but I do want to start out by, by sharing a story of um, a very famous couple who's kind of going through something like this. So in, in my life, in my house right now, uh, my wife is obsessed with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Does anyone know who I'm talking about here? This is the couple, couple from, if you don't know who, the, who these people are, this is the couple from the reality TV show on HDTV called Fixer Upper. And on this show, Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna take the worst house in the best neighborhood and turn it into their client's dream house. For those of you that watch the show, yes, I've seen quite a few episodes of this show. And so Chip and Joanna right now, they are just blowing up. They are everywhere. And let me tell you, we have bought into the frenzy hook, line, and sinker because right now Joanna's face, you can't go to a Target, you can't go to a hardware store, you can't go to a furniture store without seeing Joanna Gaines or Magnolia Market or something like that. It is everywhere right now. And it's kind of like if you have a young kid, you know how they put Mickey Mouse's face on everything to sell more junk? Well, Joanna Gaines right now is like the Mickey Mouse for suburban chicks. I mean, she is just, it's everywhere so she can sell more stuff. And man, we've bought into a hook, line, and sinker. We, uh, for, for Mother's Day, I bought my wife a Magnolia Market cookbook, and I bought her some um, bookends because she has a line at Target. I don't know why these bookends are better than regular bookends, except they cost more, and so maybe that makes them better. We went to uh, Ace Hardware the other day, because we, or actually me, was repainting a bookshelf, and I didn't even know this existed, but we walked into Ace, and they had Magnolia paint, which um, is apparently, you know, about $5 better than regular paint. I, I didn't know. Um, and so, of course, we bought the Magnolia paint for the, uh, the bookshelf, and so this this is who Chip and Joanna are. Um, this, this is the reach right now they have in the redesign world. And so um, 
Because of that, you know, when everything that blows up, there's always criticism that comes along with it. And there was a guy named Daryl Austin, who was an author, and he wrote an article criticizing Chip and Joanna as parents because he sees the success, the businesses, all this thing, and he just reasons to himself, he's never met them, but he just says, there's no way they can do all that they're doing and be good parents. And so he writes this article about how Chip and Joanna have to be awful parents. And in this article, Daryl Austin says, this is a quote, this is just not possible. And it does a disservice to the parents who really are putting their children first. So big words here from Daryl Austin. And of course, this sent Fixer Upper fans into a rabid frenzy. They were getting ready to Fixer Upper Daryl Austin's face, if you know what I'm talking about. Rabid Chip and Joanna fans were ready to kick the shiplap out of him. No, no, okay. I knew I should have took that joke out. Anyways. Later, Austin apologized and said, um, I regret writing it, referring to his original article. But then he goes on to say, in the same apology, I wrote it because I believed every word to be true. What? You know, that's the old, hey, I'm sorry if I offended anyone, apology. Not, not I'm sorry for what I did, but I'm sorry that you got offended over what I did. See, the truth is, apologies are hard. They're difficult, and we see that all over right now. People are making public apologies, and they get, you know, those apologies are torn apart, and they're crucified one way or another over what they said or what they didn't said. We know in our lives, apologies are hard. It's hard to apologize to your spouse, or hard to apologize to your kids, or hard to apologize to your parents, or maybe to a boss. But, but even if we take all the God stuff out of it for just a second, I think we intrinsically understand how important this idea of apologizing and forgiveness and reconciliation are. We know that it's just something that has to happen to make relationships work. But adding the God stuff back into it now, this idea of apologizing and restoration and healing, it's so important, it's so fundamental to our faith as Christians that we have a fancy term for it. We have a fancy word for that, and we call it repentance. And so that is what we are going to be talking about today because I believe repentance is one of the most important, one of the most fundamental aspects to the Christian faith. But unfortunately, it's one that a lot of us don't understand very well. It's one of us that's misunderstood or misconstrued. And I, I think it, it, there's reasons for that. One of them is because it's just not a fun thing to talk about. Like I said at the beginning of the message, I wanted something fun to talk about today. And when God led me to talk about repentance, I was like, I don't want to talk about that because it's not, it's not fun. In order to ask for forgiveness and talk about forgiveness, it implies that there's something that needs to be forgiven, that we did something wrong. And it's just not fun to talk about when we do something wrong. We want to talk about, man, God's good and victory and all these things. But when we talk about something like this, then we have to examine ourselves and we have to look at what we're doing. And that's not always a fun process. Another reason why I think we don't understand repentance really well in the church is because, honestly, there's been a lot of abuse and misteaching when it comes to this topic. There's, there's people that walk in a lot of condemnation, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame because they would go to church and all they would hear is a pastor get up and tell them about all they're doing wrong, all that they're not measuring up in, all the sin that they're committing, all the things that they're doing that are an abomination to God, all the turn and burn. If you don't get right, you're going to burn in the fires of hell, all of that. And so because of that, 
People walk in guilt and condemnation, and they're not able to walk in freedom. And so they, they hear a message like this, and it's like, clam up, because they know, ah, is this just going to be a message where I get beat down and told about how I'm not doing things right? I want to say right now, this is not going to be that kind of talk. But we're going to find out that repentance actually is not something that's designed to keep us in condemnation, but it's, it's something that's designed to free us from condemnation. And this is such an important thing to talk about. In fact, when Jesus began his public ministry, and you can find this in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus began his public ministry, the very first thing out of his mouth, the very first words out of his mouth was repent and believe. That repentance was so key and so foundational to, to his message and to his faith, repent and believe. And this idea of repentance and belief are so intertwined in the New Testament that you really can't separate one from the other, that they appear so much, this idea of repenting and believing. And you say, well, wait, Daniel, I thought, you know, that salvation is a free gift and I don't have to do anything for it. And yes, that's true, but repentance is so entwined with it, we can say that it's really the only thing that God asks us to do is we come to him in belief that God says that we have to repent, that we have to turn. And so we, it's so important, it's so critically important in our lives. And I believe it's from a lack of understanding of repentance that many of us here today, we don't walk in the victory over sin in our life that we want to because we don't fully understand what repentance is. We haven't fully experienced it in our life. For some of us here today, we don't experience the fullness of God's presence because we don't understand repentance. We don't experience the joy of salvation because we don't understand God's presence. I think for others of you in this place, you walk around in condemnation and guilt and shame, and you walk around beat up also because you, don't ex- you haven't experienced the fullness of repentance and don't understand the depth of it. So this is a, a vitally critical thing for us to discuss today. But we're going to look and we're going to see how this act of repentance is a gift from God. The Bible says that his kindness, his goodness, his kindness leads us to repentance. And we see that this is something that God's designed not so that we can be beat up, man, so that God can lift us up. Not so that we can have condemnation heaped on us, but it's conviction that leads us into his presence. And so today we're going to discuss repentance. We're going to look at what David did, and we're going to look at this prayer in Psalm and see the road for us to take, man, because there is beauty that waits on the other side of it. You guys ready to get into it with me? All right, here we go. Thank you, all three of you that are are with me. So looking at Psalm 51, we see it's David's prayer of repentance. I love how honest and raw this is. Remember, once again, the context of this man. David royally screwed up, and David was a king, so he royally, never mind, this is supposed to be a joke, never mind. Um, So we're going to see here, and let's let's look at these, and we're going to see some elements of repentance that are really important. Starting in verse 1, David says this, Have mercy on me, O God. Will you read the underlined parts with me, crowd? Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Oop, there's a box there. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of sins. Wash me clean from guilt. Purify me from sin. For I recognize rebellion. It haunts me day and night. See, the first thing David did was he took ownership of his sin. It's my sin, my guilt. And, and we are not wired to do this. We are wired to shift blame. We are wired to assuage our guilt. We are wired to say, 
well, you know, it's not really that bad or it's not really my fault or the reason why this happened. We're so good at coming up with excuses. We're so good at coming up with things to try to minimize our part in what happened. So when I was a kid um, in elementary school, I remember I got in trouble once. And it was just once, by the way, just for the record. I got in trouble once. And uh, I, I don't remember what I got in trouble for, but I remember um, sitting in this little, like, alcove thing as, as everyone else was playing at recess. And I, I, you know, I was banned from going to recess for that day, sitting on the concrete ground just against this brick wall and leaning back, and my mind's just racing a million miles an hour. What am I going to do to get out of being in trouble? What excuse can I come up with to prove that it's not my fault? And so I remember sitting there, like I said, I have no idea to this day what I was in trouble for, but I remember the excuse I came up with. I remember thinking to myself, I know, I will tell my teacher I was possessed by the devil. <laughs> and then it won't be my fault. See, there's some downsides to being raised in the church. <laughs> that, was, that was all I got. I was possessed by the devil. And um, obviously, uh, that did not fly uh, with the teacher, and I still got in trouble for that. I, I, we're so good at shifting blame and coming up with excuses and minimizing our part in it. And there's, it, it happens all the time. You know, while we're, while we're driving down the road, hey, it's not my fault that I'm getting angry driving. If the other drivers in Tulsa knew how to drive, then, see, I'm preaching right now. Some of you are like, you weren't tracking with me, but this is the only part you're getting. The preacher said it was okay for me to get mad because no one else knows how to drive, honey. But if everyone else knew how to drive, if, if people knew what a turn signal was, then I wouldn't have to educate them with my road rage. You know, if they knew how to drive, then I wouldn't be so mad. It's not really my fault. See, I'm not really gossiping. I'm sharing a prayer request. How is my small group supposed to know about what these people are going through unless I tell them? And I tell everyone that, you know, that this, oh, did you hear about what's going on? Oh, bless their heart. Well, let's pray for them. You know, that how, how are they supposed to know? I'm not gossiping. It's not my fault. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm sharing a prayer request. You know, I'm, I regret what I wrote, but I stand by my article. It's like, what, what is, you know, it's that we move and, and shift blame. But, but more seriously than that, you know, if my spouse met my needs, then I wouldn't need to look at porn. But because they don't, that's why I do. It's their fault that I'm doing what I'm doing. Daniel, if you knew the stress I was under at work, if you knew all the expectations that were placed on me, if you knew all the pressure that I'm at at home and all these things that I'm trying to do, it's not my fault that I have a drinking problem. It's all these other people. It's their fault. It's not my fault that I have to medicate myself just to make it through the day. It's their fault. It's all the pressure. Daniel, if you knew how I was raised, if you knew the things that happened in my life, it's not my fault that I have an addiction. It's my parents' fault. It's my childhood. It's not my fault. It's their fault. We're so good at shifting and so good at moving with blame. But David didn't do that. David took ownership of his sin. This is my sin. It's my guilt. He took ownership. He didn't try to blame. Well, it's Bathsheba's fault. It's Nathan's fault. It's my fault. He took ownership of his sin. Another thing that we see that David did that's so important here is that David also does not try to minimize his sin. We see in verse 4, he says, Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment 
against me is just. Now, David took his sin seriously. He didn't try to minimize it. He didn't try to marginalize it. He didn't try to make it, you know, it's just, oh, it's no big deal. He took what he did seriously. We're so good at just trying to make it smaller than it really is. And I've used the word sin a lot here this morning, and I've done that on purpose because I think even that word, it's hard to say a lot. It's hard to say out loud because we don't even use that word anymore. We don't have sin. We have issues. We don't have sins. We have things that we're working on. We don't have sins. We have, oh, that's an area of improvement for me. We don't have a sin. Oh, that's my character flaw. And what we, what we do when that happens, we, we minimize it. We're saying, oh, it's not that big a deal. But David doesn't do that. He called what he did evil in the Lord's sight. He took full ownership of it. He took full ownership of it. He took full responsibility for the weight of what he did. And it's because he did that that he was able to move on into the next area, the next phase of repentance. And we find that here in verse 8. David says, oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. See, David experienced brokenness over his sin. Now, you might say, hey, hang on, Daniel, time out. I thought, I thought brokenness was a bad thing. Like, I don't want to be broken. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Like, you know, that's, I thought God wants to heal us. Like, why, why would he want us to be broken? That's kind of counterintuitive. But see, there is a brokenness that comes from God. And the Apostle Paul does a really good job of explaining how this works. In the letter of 2 Corinthians, he wrote as a follow-up because in this first letter, he had to line the church out on some things. The church in Corinth was getting out of hand, and so Paul had to bring some correction, but that correction also brought some sorrow and also brought some people who were saddened by this. And so Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And Paul says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience. God, there's a sorrow that God wants us to experience? It sounds so backwards from the way we think. It leads us astray from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. Can you imagine that there's a brokenness, there's a sorrow that comes from God that he says there's no regret for that. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And God wants us to own sin because it's only in doing that that we can begin to be broken by that sin. And church, there's just something that happens when, if we're not ever broken by it, then we don't realize our need for God's forgiveness. We don't realize our need for repentance. Well, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big of an issue. I've got it under control. But when we realize the gravity of sin, when we realize the gravity of it, that it's not just an issue. It's not just the character flaw. It's not just something I'm trying to work on. But sin destroys everything that it touches. Everything that it touches, it destroys. It's like when I was growing up, there was this movie called Little Shop of Horrors that was probably inappropriate for me to watch as a kid, but it had music, and so I thought it was cool. And so in this movie, there's this alien plant that's named Audrey 2, and Audrey 2 is initially cute, and then Audrey 2 grows up into a giant man-eating plant and tries to kill everything. That's what sin is. Sin is Audrey 2. Sin is, it may look cute and you may think you have it under control and may seem fun for a moment, but eventually it will get big, it will get out of control, and it will destroy you. The Bible is very clear on this. Paul says the wages of sin is death. 
And we, when we realize that, when we recognize that, when we recognize the gravity of it, that it's not just something that, that affects me and, and has no impact on other people, but it's something that will destroy everything in my life that I hold dear, then only then, I think, can we begin to experience brokenness over that sin. I think a lot of times we don't experience that because we don't realize the impact. It's like I have someone in my family right now who's going through something, and she never reached out for anyone to help. She never, and because of that, she thought, well, I don't want to bother anyone. You know, it's just my problem. But she didn't realize by doing that, she isolated herself from everyone. Now, everyone's really mad and upset with her because she didn't reach out, that she didn't realize her problem was destroying and impacting relationships in her life. And sin is that. Sin is a cancer that will eat away at everything in your life. And you can ask anyone who's gone through the, the, the process of, of recovery or had a problem where they've really bottomed out. And you can tell the whole way down, they think, I've got it under control. I've got it under control. It's not that big a deal. Then boom, they hit bottom and they realize, oh my goodness, this thing is so much bigger than me. It's impacted everyone in my life. Everyone that I love, everyone that I cherish has been hurt by this thing, but it, can I tell you, in that moment is when brokenness happens, and in that moment is when healing begins to take place. See, it's not until we're broken that we realize our need for a Savior. And until we experience brokenness, we don't realize our need for a Savior. Well, there's good news here, church, is the good news is that God does not want to leave us in this state. Because, man, how cruel would God be if he just left us in a state of brokenness? But he doesn't. But this is where healing can begin for us. And how does healing come? Well, healing comes through confession. See, David confessed his sin. This whole psalm is a confession. This is really important for us to understand that David did not just confess his sin to God. He did not just confess his sin in a prayer to God, but he confessed it to Nathan. If you go and read the account, you'll see that when Nathan confronts him, David confesses to what he done. But many scholars believe that this psalm is actually a public confession for King David, that the mere fact that it's published and we have record of it was proof that David publicly acknowledged what he did and repented and confessed over it. And this is so important that we get this this morning, that confession is an absolutely crucial part to repentance and not just confession to God, not just praying to God, oh God, I'm sorry for what I've done. And God knows what you've done. He already sees it. But what happens when we confess one to another is that God uses that in a way that's special and in the way that only he can. We see this constantly throughout Scripture. In James 5.16, James says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you can be healed. In Proverbs 28.13, he says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Church, when you confess something, you make it real. And when you do that, you begin to break its power over you. So church, I really believe that what you don't confess to controls you. And it's only when you begin to confess and only when you begin to make it real and make it known, when you allow the light to shine in to an area where there was previously only darkness, that you begin to unlock the power of God's healing in your life. And I've, I've, I've had to experience this myself. See, at my age, when I was a teenager, um, man, it just sounds so old saying that. Um, it was right around the advent of the internet. And so because of that, 
uh, with the advent of the internet came the advent of internet pornography. And as any teenager with unfiltered access to the internet would do, I would down, I would just, you know, I became trapped and ensnared by it. Different back in the AOL days, too, when, you know, dirty pictures would upload one line at a time. <laughs> like, I think I'll make coffee or something to finish. Anyways. Um, but because, because I remember, I, I tried to do everything. I was, you know, I tried to do everything to get free. Um, praying and, you know, scriptures on my wallpaper and making my, my password into AOL, something that, you know, was like real godly, like, God is watching you. Enter, you know, get, on, get online. <laughs> and none of that worked. But it wasn't until I confessed to a pastor. It wasn't until I had a talk with my wife. It wasn't until I made it real and I allowed light to shine in where there previously was only darkness that healing took place in my life. See, I think what's going on right now in our society is we're seeing, some, we're seeing a principle play out that we will either confess sin or we will be confronted by sin. And I think all the things we're seeing with all the stuff that's coming out right now in a way is, is this playing out, that people are being confronted by things because they didn't confess to them. And the pain of confession is awful. I'm not gonna sugarcoat that. It stinks. It absolutely stinks. But the pain of confession is far less than the damage of having your sins confronted. It's far less. And I just want to encourage you, whatever you're, if you're here today and you're going through something like that, that, man, my prayer for you is that you, that God will give you the boldness to, to confess to someone. And I'm not talking about, by the way, public confession. We are not going to have open mic time. You know, come up here and confess your sin. That is not going to happen here at this church. But maybe some of you, you have a sponsor that you need to talk to. Maybe some of you have a small group leader that you need to talk to. Maybe some of you have a spouse that you need to go to and you need to have a hard conversation with. And I just want to encourage you that you may, you may at this, on this side of the fence feel like I could lose everything. But, but there is a freedom and a release and something that God does, there's a lightness that comes over your soul when you have no more skeletons in the closet. There is a, light, there is, there is a pep, in, even if you have to deal with the fallout of your confession, there is a pep in your step that just happens because you've allowed light to shine into areas of your heart and of your life where there previously has not been light. And so I just want to encourage you in love, um, if you're going through it, find, find a safe place, but find, find someone to confess to that it's going to hurt a little bit, and it should hurt a little bit. If it doesn't hurt a little bit, it's probably not the right person to confess it to, that, that there should be some pain there because that pain, I heard Blaine Bartell say this, that that pain is what keeps you honest afterwards. It's that pain that, that allows you to walk in freedom, and God uses our brokenness. God uses that, and it culminates in this, in this moment of confession, it's such a powerful tool that God gives us because I really believe if we don't confess our sin, we're controlled by our sin. But when we confess it, then we break that power, and it's such an amazing thing. The final thing that happens, so we take ownership of our sin, we, we, man, we're broken by it, we confess it, and God uses that confession sometimes to bring about that brokenness. Um, so it's, this is not like some one, two, three thing, but you know, God brings, brings about brokenness through confession sometimes. But the final thing that has to happen and something that I think we often miss when it comes to repentance 
is we have to accept God's forgiveness. We have to accept God's forgiveness. Look at what David says as he closes out this prayer, in verse, starting in verse 16. He says, you do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls again will be sacrificed on your altar. See, one of the things that we have to understand here is that David did not try to sacrifice his way out of his guilt. He didn't try to sacrifice his way back into God's good graces. But he said, God, I need your forgiveness. He realized that he could not earn God's forgiveness. And he, he didn't focus on just his acts, but he focused on, God, I need your forgiveness. I need you to change my heart, and I need you to purify my heart. And church, I want you to hear me really clear, and I, if you take nothing else out of today, hear this, that there is nothing you can do to earn God's forgiveness. There is nothing you can do to earn God's forgiveness, and your forgiveness is not contingent upon your behavior. So it's not like when you ask God for forgiveness that he says, well, but let's see how you do before he forgives you. Let's see if you get back on track. Let's see if you turn, you know, straighten up. Let's see if you get it right this time. That your forgiveness does not depend on that, church. There's not something you can do. There's not something you can say. There's not enough goodwill in the bank that you can accumulate. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's forgiveness. But when we come to God in brokenness and honesty and humility, and we say, God, I'm sorry, I've messed up. God, would you forgive me? And when we're honest about that, church, you are forgiven 100% right then, right there at that moment. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to try to be better for it. Church, you're forgiven right then and right there. And too many times I think we walk around in condemnation because we're so focused on, on how we're living and, and trying to do right. And it's just like if I, if I mess up, then God's not going to love me. If I mess up, God's not going to forgive me. Church, you don't have to earn it. Church, you start from a place of God's forgiveness. It's not something that you work yourself into. It's not something that you wander into, but you start from a place of his forgiveness. And that's what his grace is. It's not something that you have to earn. But see, I think a lot of times we think our faith is just behavior modification. That we walk in here and we learn how to be better people. We learn how to talk nicer and we learn how to, you know, do better and we learn how to smell better and all that, you know, with this, we, we learn how to be better Christians and learn how to be better people. I think if we, if we boil our faith down to that, we are selling it so short. Because Christianity is not just behavior modification. Christianity is a heart transplant. Look at what David says in verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. And if we get so focused on our works and, oh, I, I asked God for forgiveness, but, but I didn't, you know, I messed up again, so maybe he's not really going to forgive me. Maybe he's not really going to love me. That, that we get so off track because what God is after is he is after your heart. And he is after my heart. And repentance is a gift from God. Why? Because every time we do that, what he's doing is he's taking our heart and he's molding it and he's making it a little bit more like his heart and he's making you a little bit less like you and he's making you a little bit more like him. And he's not just trying to shape your behavior. He's not just trying to get you into some box. He's not just trying to control you or lord over you or tell you how to live. He's trying to put a brand new heart in you. 
And that's what shapes the behavior. That's what, that, all the rest takes care of, his, of, of itself. And, and if you're walking around in condemnation and, ah, oh, does God forgive me? Does God love me? Just remember, you start from a place of his forgiveness, that the price has already been paid on the cross. Jesus didn't come and die just so that you have a way to work harder and you have a way to try to be better and you have a way to try to look better and do more. He came and died so that you could have 100% forgiveness and access and your relationship to God can be restored. And it's not dependent on what you do. I mean, yeah, do we have to live right? I mean, yes, absolutely. But what's God? God's more concerned about our hearts being transformed because he knows if, if I can transform your heart, I'll change your life. If I can transform your heart, your actions will take care of themselves. If you can get your heart right with God, man, that addiction is going to break. If you can get your heart right with God, that, that sin problem, that lust problem, that anger problem, that gossip problem, that envy problem, that thing in your life that, that is just running up the score on you, that will break. Not because you're trying to be better, not because you're, because you're trying, but your heart is being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what it's about, church. That's what it is about. So don't let the enemy turn God's conviction into condemnation. Because the Holy Spirit convicts. Why? Because he's after our heart. And he knows that sin, he knows the damage of it. He knows, man, if you're doing things in your life that, that are going to pull you away out of relationship with God and out of relationship with people in your life that you love, man, he's going to convict you of that. But if you repent... And you come before God and you say, God, I'm sorry. God, I messed up. God, would you forgive me? You are forgiven right there. Right there, in that moment. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to strive for it. You're forgiven right there. And in that moment, man, you can let the condemnation fall off. No matter, look, if, if anyone in the Bible should have not been forgiven, it was David, Okay? What he did by our standards today is unforgivable. The level of abuse, the level, I mean, you talk about, you know, all this stuff, Me Too movement, all, David, David's actions were absolutely egregious. And yet somehow he was called the man after God's own heart. I don't get it. I don't get it. But if, if David can be forgiven for what he did, then you can be forgiven too. If David can be restored back to God, then you can be restored back to God too. If David can say, God, give me a clean heart, then there's not a sin in this place. There's not an action in this place. No one in this place has gone too far. No one has done too much. No one has gone beyond God's reach. How do I know that? Because you're here right now and you're listening to these words and there is hope for you. Once again, not, not hope that you're gonna become some cookie cutter Christian but hope that God is going to put a heart and a life in you that is so radically going to transform you and so radically going to change you that you're not gonna look like yourself anymore. You're not gonna talk like yourself anymore. You're not gonna think like yourself anymore. Why? Not because you're trying, not because you got on some new diet, not because you have some new self-help things, because God has changed you forever. Yeah.